they kind of put it together and they knew that like, okay, if we really want to sell this project and we want to get funding for it, we need to show it to an astronaut first. Because once an astronaut sees that they could have it, they're going to be saying, yes, we need that. We need that. And kind of constantly, you know, pounding, pounding the, the project management um, and the budget people of like, what do you guys need to do to make that happen? And we want that. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Altium On Track podcast. I am your host, Zach Peterson. Today, we are talking with Andrew Hartnett, a computer engineer at NASA, about all things design education, uh, electronics education, and some of the interesting work that he does working at NASA, as well as something that he uh, participated in called the First Robotics Competition. So this is all going to be very interesting. Andrew, thank you so much for joining us on the On Track podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, working at NASA is, uh, I think, for uh, many uh, young men of my generation, uh, was always uh, a dream when you were in the single-digit age group. And um, uh, and and throughout some double-digit age groups in there, too. That's fair. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Uh, so, And you're actually doing it. That's pretty cool. Yeah, uh, actually, a, a fun story about that. I still even have, uh, in third grade, we had to design something and you know for a third grader to design something it was just color it with some colored pencils or something and i still have uh what my design was which was the quicker space junk picker upper not from bounty um if you remember the, the quicker picker upper um and so yeah i remember even in third grade hearing about space junk floating around and how it's going to be a problem someday and a little third grader me thought okay well obviously we just need a little claw and a bag and just go and collect all the space junk so problem solved it's been a long time dream for me <laughs> nice make sure you patent that <laughs> <laughs> well um one thing i like to do with uh with uh, guests is just ask them about their background and, and really how you got into your current position and what got you interested in electronics yeah so uh it's funny that you asked that because i i feel like there's a bunch of things I can tie in here, um, but I actually joined a, the high school robotics team um, the, for the first robotics team when I was in high school. Um, and uh, the reason I joined was because I was in programming classes. They needed a programmer. I didn't really know what it was that I wanted to do necessarily. I knew I wanted to work at NASA, but uh, even throughout high school, I didn't really understand all the different jobs that NASA would have. So I always thought I had to more or less be an aerospace engineer to work at NASA even in high school. And so I joined my high school robotics team. I programmed the robot. I got roped into some of the electronics of it. I really loved all that stuff. And I started figuring out, okay, I could really do a lot more than just aerospace type of engineering. Um, and that hands-on experience while I was in high school was what really cemented uh, that I wanted to go an electrical or computer engineering route. Um, being able to program something and see it move, um, not always necessarily the way you wanted it to, uh, but you know, just seeing all that stuff happen and troubleshooting it uh, was just so rewarding to me. And so uh, that pushed me down the um, engineering route or the uh, computer and electrical engineering route. Um, and so looking at colleges, I tried to figure out who had opportunities with NASA built up. Um, and so if a high school student is listening to this, I definitely recommend looking into schools with co-op programs where you work a semester and then you uh, go back to school for a semester and you go back and forth and you typically stay at the same place. Um, so I found out Purdue had a co-op uh, position there and that they frequently had co-ops at NASA. Um, long story with all of that, but ultimately I initially didn't uh, 
get an interview with NASA because Purdue would decide who got to interview. Uh, but through a lot of networking and determination, um, I was able to get the co-op uh, interview and the job offer anyways and go to Purdue and say, I don't, even if you didn't give me the interview, I still got the job anyways. Um, and so that's always a story I try to tell kids of, you know, you, you got to persevere. You're going to hit some roadblocks. People will tell you no to your dreams along the way. Um, and fortunately, due to a lot of networking effort on my part and a really supportive network of friends that you know, I still remember calling up my high school friend so sad about not getting the interview. And she's like, who cares? You're going to work there anyways. And just having that support from somebody that really wasn't going an engineering route, didn't have any influence on whether I would get there or not. Just know she knew that I was going to end up there whether I wanted to or not. So um, yeah, it's really important to surround yourself with good people and, and push through those things. So um, yeah, and I got the co-op at NASA, and uh, I really enjoyed my co-op tours and started working there full-time in January of 2010. Very cool. So you've been there for quite a while, January of 2010. I have, yeah. Actually, I re- yeah, so I started my co-op at 19 years old, and I'm sure you can imagine, you know, a 19-year-old at, at NASA, like I was just surrounded by people all the time thinking, oh my God, I'm never going to be able to fit in. These people are so smart. They remember things from data sheets before I was born. Um, and so it, it definitely kept me humble throughout college. I never, even if I was doing well in a class, I never felt that cocky just because I was like, man, this stuff is nothing compared to some of what my coworkers do. So I, I, I could tell that that was all just brushing the surface. You know, I, I like what you said about uh, when you were younger uh, and having that eureka moment doing something with like robotics. Um, those eureka mm-hmm. moments as a young scientist or a young engineer are so powerful. And I think for designers who maybe build their first board and then get it fabbed and get it assembled and they turn it on and, oh my gosh, it works. Those moments are so powerful. Yeah. I know they always were for me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, nothing can replace that that experience and aha moment of seeing something that you created uh, do something or work the way that you want it to, or even if it, you know, just kind of blows up, but you get to see and learn something from it. So, um, I know when I saw y'all, uh, release the upverter stuff that I was excited about that, trying to be more accessible for younger students. Um, something that, you know, is more geared towards that high school age. Um, just cause yeah, I mean, it's so important to, um, get that excitement, uh, earlier. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, speaking of, of, you know, design education and trying to reach kids at a younger age, I, I think making it fun and accessible is so important because there are so many students or so many kids out there who, you know, have the capacity to, to you know, do this well and maybe just never envisioned it for themselves or, you know, never had an easy way to get into it and develop that passion. And so I, my hope with, you know, things like Upverter and, you know, other initiatives from other players in the industry that there will be a way to actually, you know, convince that kind of group of students who maybe never saw themselves as doing electronics or programming or whatever to, to jump in. Because I, I feel like, um, and I've heard this remarked from, uh, you know, other folks that uh, there's just not enough engineers to even pursue all of the good ideas that are worth pursuing, uh, not just in this country, I but would believe that. probably around the world. Yeah. I would absolutely believe that. Yeah, a mix of, I'm sure, not enough designers and testers and, and not enough money. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, now that you're at NASA um, and you've been there quite a while, you know, now you work actually teaching PCB designers at NASA. And yeah, so oh, yeah, go ahead. Okay. Sorry. I was going to say, uh, that's something that I, I really love is um, 
JSC has a really strong co-op and internship program. And so um, I think some summers, even in my relatively small branch, we'll have, you know, five or more interns all there. Um, and some of them are high school students, some of them are college students. Um, and uh, it's obviously, you know, really difficult to get into. Uh, but uh, the, the students that we get in are really great. And some of them have some experience uh, designing things. And some of them have just had whatever college and high school classes they've, you know, had as requirements. Um, but I, I love working with uh, younger people and, and kind of teaching them whatever it is that I've been able to learn so far. And, and sometimes it's really cool just because by virtue of teaching somebody, I learn more myself. They ask a question that I had never really thought much about. And suddenly I'm like, oh, that's a good question. I don't know why it works that way. Let me go try to figure that out and, and see if I can explain it to you. Yeah. Forcing you to go do your homework. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I remember that vividly when I was teaching in a university. So, um, yeah, getting those odd questions and having to come back a few days later with a decent answer. Yeah. So, you know, you, you brought up uh, something interesting, especially around, um, I guess, preparing young people to work, um, sounds like NASA specifically, but maybe more generally in aerospace, which is, you know, these co-op programs that I've never heard of, of this, um, you know, even with all the time I've spent in academia before, you know, coming in and working in the electronics industry, um, I'd never heard of anything like a co-op program that sounds kind of like what you described. Can you maybe shed some, some light on what that is and how that works? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So um, different colleges do it differently. Uh, some colleges require you to and some don't. So for instance, uh, I grew up in Toledo, Ohio. I know Kettering University and Cincinnati University both require you to have co-ops. Um, and other colleges, you know, it's an optional thing. And then some colleges are uh, enable you to do a co-op but they don't really have a program for it. But the way that it works is you basically, you go and interview with a job um, and that has a co-op program. And uh, typically what you do is you might do like one summer tour that, that you work at the job and then a spring semester and a fall semester uh, that you spend at the job. And so um, for at Purdue, I actually did five co-op tours at NASA. So I alternated pretty much every other semester. I'd spend some summers at school, some springs or falls at school, but I also would spend spring, f summers and falls at, at work down here in Houston. Um, and uh, the, the really great thing about a co-op program versus an internship program is by the time you've graduated, that that company knows you really well and has put a large amount of time and resources comparatively into training you. So they know they could hire you full time and you already fit in. You already kind of know how the system works at their, their workplace. So uh, there's a, a larger incentive for them to hire you on full time from their co-op program versus, you know, somebody that maybe spent a, a summer internship there. Um, also with the summer and fall semesters, you get a larger time that you're working on. A lot of times a summer internship is like six to eight weeks versus a fall semester might be 10 to 12 weeks or something like that. So you can just do uh, cooler work in that time. Um, I'm sure as you can imagine, uh, say for instance, if you were in an avionics world like me and you have a summer internship, you can maybe get through the design in the summer. But if you come for a spring or fall, you can maybe get through not just only the design, but actually see it manufactured and get to see it in your hands and, and test with it. Um, so internships are obviously great. There are advantages to it. You can say, change which company you go to and uh, versus a co-op, you typically stay at the same company. Okay, that that's interesting because uh, I really enjoyed the co-op program. Oh, yeah. yeah. And I was just going to ask like what some of the differences are between uh, you know, a typical internship and then these co-op programs, you know, I, I think the, 
the typical kind of uh, perception of an internship, uh, whether it's electronics or any other industry or you know any other you know kind of job you might do, is uh, basically going in working for free, doing the lowest level kind of job at some company, and you know you're just really hoping to get a good recommendation or maybe it's required for a program, something like this, and then you kind of go off somewhere else. And uh, I think for some students, they're hoping they hit the lottery and, yeah. you know, it leads to a you know nice cushy job at the end of it by the time they graduate. Um, what, you know, co-op sounds totally different. Uh, yeah, I think a co-op totally is different. Um, it, I would always, if a student felt like they knew kind of where it was that they wanted to go, I would always recommend a co-op over an internship if that exists. Um, because kind of like you said, an internship, uh, those are uh, typically you go there once you you maybe hope that you make a really good impression with somebody um, and be able to get a, a job out of it versus a co-op you go back over and over again um, and also you have a longer time so you uh, if you imagine you know the summer you only get to design a board but then the spring or fall you have enough time you you design it manufacture it and get to see it um, so the company gets to see a lot more out of you as well. Also by going back to them, uh, you know, my, my fifth co-op tour, um, I was kind of in the same place over and over again. And so they would kind of build up a little bit more and you could get more and more exciting work as you build up some trust with them. Um, versus like you said, if you're an intern somewhere and you're going in just a one time, they're probably not going to have a whole lot of faith right away to give you anything. Um, and especially if you're only there six to eight weeks. And so you might just get some small uh, task versus a co-op. If you're going there over and over again and, and they kind of know what you, you can produce, you might get some cooler things. So, um, yeah, I, I think the co-op program is definitely great. Oh, yeah. And maybe I'm being a little unfair when I describe internships, because I, I know that there are some companies that do, they do have, you know, a really well-developed internship program, and they try and, you know, really use it to find talent and nurture it. Um, but I think it really ranges, you know, in terms of the quality of the position you could get and the opportunities that could be available. But it sounds like with, you know, the type of co-ops that are available, like through NASA, this really gets students able to get that hands-on training that's really going to better prepare them for a job, whether it's designing electronics, test and measurement, uh, actually doing something like mechanical, let's say. Um, would, you, would you agree? Yeah, I would generally agree. Um, of course, it's always going to depend on who you get as a mentor. Um, you know, if you have a really awesome mentor and you're only there six weeks, you're still going to learn a lot um, and, and maybe a lot more than if you, I think I had, for instance, one co-op tour where, um, you know, I showed up and uh, it was right before somebody had to leave for a long time. And so, you know, I, I had a mentor for a little bit and then kind of had somebody unexpectedly have to take over their, their position of mentoring me. And so that made that co-op tour a little bit harder um, just because they weren't anticipating participating in intern. Um, so I, it definitely can come down a lot to a mentor, but I, I think that you're more likely to get um, that, that really great experience uh, and more hands-on from a co-op versus an internship. Sure, sure. So, I mean, with you seeing uh, so many students coming in off of, you know, these co-op programs or probably just coming in fresh um, and then having to jump into electronics design, what does what the background for students look like? Man, it can be all over the place. Uh, you know, we've had some students that have come in and maybe through hobbies or uh, possibly through classes, they've already done some schematic design or PCB layout. Um, and then we've had other students that come in um, and I was one of them because I joined when I was 19. I didn't have any design classes by that point. Um, I couldn't tell you 
you how a transistor worked when I joined. Uh, so uh, you, you've got a, a wide gambit of uh, students coming in in different positions. Um, and uh, fortunately, I had had some hands-on experience. So even though I didn't necessarily know the design aspects of it, I, I felt comfortable working with things and kind of where to go with things. Um, but definitely, I think a good reason for any high school or college student to be looking for some kind of club or extracurricular um, to get exposure to things that you don't get to in the classroom. Uh, I, I think my college path, I didn't have to do any schematic or layout really until my senior design project. Um, so I, I was better at my senior design project because of my co-ops rather than being better at my co-op because of my classes. And I've had plenty of interns and uh, students tell me, you know, the same thing. They learned the stuff hands-on in their co-op. And then the next year or two, they went and did it in a class and it was super easy for them. So, yeah. So I think what I'm hearing here is, is kind of follows with the trend of what we've, we've heard talking with some other uh, educators, especially, you know, from the U S or at U S universities is that there really isn't a lot out there that's focusing specifically on design. It's more focusing more broadly on circuits, analysis, yeah. simulation, all of these other things. And yet the physical layout and the design and the manufacturing is generally absent and they have to pick it up through osmosis, videos, uh, you know, reading on their own, hobbies, things like this. Yeah, certainly. Now, granted, I was a computer engineer than, rather than an electrical engineer, or that was my focus, but I don't remember any classes on, uh, you know, board stack up or uh, the different materials that you can use and how that impacts anything. Um, even in our senior design where we were doing PCB, um, the professor would kind of just look it over and say, you have to, you know, change this and would give us input as to why, but we didn't really cover a whole lot about the whole layout aspect or how it gets manufactured and, and how all of that can be an impact on things. So, and some of it's, you know, really basic stuff too, that uh, seems like it should be covered in a class, but just isn't. Yeah. I think it's easy to overlook a lot of that basic stuff. You know, you're focused on the nitty gritty of making sure it works electrically. Yeah. And then there are some fine details that I think at first glance look fine, until you send the board in to get quoted and then they give it no bid. Yeah. Tell you it can't be manufactured because of all these little details that you would have never thought to think about. And a bunch of labs, you know, you're just doing it on a breadboard with wires and resistors that you're, you mm -hmm. know, plugging into a breadboard. And that's a totally different world. Um, you know, uh, I, I think that, uh, I don't know, you don't necessarily think about how with a breadboard you can have all these traces going over top of each other and, you know, on a, you might not be able to make it as a two-layer board, you got to make it as a four-layer board or, or something. Um, I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, and then simple things like clearances, uh, hole sizes, yeah. stuff like this. I, I think that's one of these, one of the questions that uh, I had uh, asked early on when I was uh, first looking at uh, doing my own boards uh, outside of, you know, an academic setting uh, was just like, how big are these holes? I can't even measure it. How big do I make things? You know, because like the CAD tool lets you do anything. Right. Well, and you can right? zoom it's in super far and, and be like, oh, this hole's gigantic. I've got plenty of clearance. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Then you try and compare with the actual package size and yeah. it's like, that makes no sense. Yeah. You know? <laughs> Um, so, I mean, with what kind of challenges does this create for, for someone in your position who has to actually then, you know, teach students how to build stuff that's going to go into uh, what 
could unequivocally be called a, a harsh environment. <laughs> yeah. So a lot of times what we end up doing is for our student interns, they're, they're more uh, building out the first rev of something that we want to go and, and just check out and make sure that um, the device works. Uh, sometimes uh, some, some student interns that are uh, very capable get to work on boards that uh, we might take to radiation testing. Um, I think probably one of the things that uh, is certainly not unique to NASA, but uh, something that NASA probably does more than other places is we radiation test a lot of our um, designs to make sure that they can handle things, especially low Earth orbit is, is, can be harsher sometimes than going past the Earth um, just because there's the Van Allen belts and uh, so the space station stuff can get a lot of radiation in there. Um, and can can we write software that can handle the single event upsets, upsets do things latch up, um, things like that. So um, our student interns are usually more of like, okay, we want to go use this chip to do this thing. Um, and let's go get a simple board together, make sure that it works. And then the next step might be, okay, let's get this as part of an integrated design we can take to radiation testing um, or make sure that this processor will be sufficient in, in radiation testing. Um, and and then there's not often that our co-ops or interns or our students are working on you know the board design that would end up in in space type of deal do they uh also uh get to participate in the test and, and measurement phase whether it's electrical or you know mechanical thermal radiation testing yeah that's something that um at least me and and i know several of my coworkers. that's usually the thing that we there's, there's two or three things that we love to try to get our interns that experience because it's the most exciting stuff. So one of the things that's really exciting is the actually actual assembly of the board, especially if it's just you know a test board. Um, if it's a, a quote-unquote real board, we'd have NASA technicians assemble it or we send it out for assembly somewhere else. Um, but we have an automatic pick-and-place machine in, uh, in a lab near us. Uh, we have a manual one. And so that's been really cool for interns to be able to go and, and use a pick-and-place machine to assemble their board or or see it be assembled um and uh we definitely love trying to include our interns in any of the testing process that we can do as well so uh, there are times sometimes where we might take an intern to radiation testing uh somewhere uh and so they can see the results of it or how how a design does um, or just general testing in the lab uh that's usually where we try to have our interns um doing their work is being able to uh, do some testing with an O-scope, uh, try to make sure that signals are, you know, looking clean and uh, functioning, uh, everything's starting up or stopping in the order that we want it to, etc. Um, there's also the more formal layer of testing that NASA has to do, and that's usually not something we try to get the interns too involved in because that can be the more... Uh, you know, boring uh, type stuff that, uh, you know, you just kind of got to sit through and, and make sure everything's working. But all the, the lab integration stuff, uh, you know, where the, the fun happens, where you're, something goes wrong and you got to fix it, uh, that, that's oftentimes where we have our interns and co-ops working on things. Yeah, with uh, more formal testing, I uh, imagine about 70% of that is writing reports. <laughs> yeah, definitely plenty of writing reports. Uh, I think probably the, the bigger thing is writing the procedure for the test, uh, mm -hmm. you know, because if you can't just do something and then see what happens. And so there's so much uh, procedure writing and boilerplate stuff of, okay, this is what we're going to do. And then if this happens, we'll do this thing. If this happens, we'll do this other thing. Because um, when you get to that test uh, and it's a formal test, you can't do anything that you don't have a procedure for type of deal. So um, 
that's definitely a lot of effort and, and stuff goes into the administration type side of, uh, uh, of that. And, and with, uh, you know, some of those more formal testing or more, uh, I guess, probing at the reliability of assemblies kind of testing, you know, I'm, I'm going to assume that you're going well beyond what uh, some designers might be familiar with in terms of like IPC standards, let's say. Yeah, so uh, that's something that I feel like I should know more about than I do, if I'm honest, because, uh, you know, I can't tell you a whole lot necessarily about some of the different standards that uh, we we probably have some people that are concerned with. Um, but some of the testing that we do that might be beyond what other people think about when they're doing things is, uh, especially for anything space station related, for instance, we have to deal with a wide range of power glitches um, at voltages that maybe most testers don't. Uh, do things, you know, so we're not worried about what the house voltage at 120 VAC may be. We're worried at a, about a different voltage that space station runs at, for instance. And so what kind of glitches will we see there? Will we be able to handle it? Um, and then do we decide like, okay, well, we might get a glitch that uh, kills our project. And is that okay? Obviously we can't respond in a way that we eject anything back to the space station that causes any problems. So it's, you know, we do a lot of uh, testing to see, okay, what kind of noise are we generating? Um, also, we do acoustic testing, um, which might not be something that uh, people spend too much time thinking about for a lot of other electronic designs, but um, especially when it comes to if we've got a pump or any kind of motor running for anything, astronauts are up there and they've got, you know, however many experiments going around on around them 24 seven. Um, and so I think space station is surprisingly loud, even if it, though it's, you know, hundreds of miles away from anybody. Um, and so you got to do acoustic testing to make sure that you're not going to be producing above a certain amount of decibels for more than a certain number of hours of day and, and things like that. So, and of course, also a, a bunch of vibration testing as well, because uh, sitting on a rocket going from zero to whatever speed it needs to get escape velocity or get up to the space station, uh, there's a lot of different vibrations that we got to worry about. Yeah, acoustic testing, I think, would be most surprising for people because, you know, you look at pictures of this type of environment, and I mean, same goes for like a data center, right? You look at the, you know, kind of stock image of a data center and you see all the servers lined up, you yeah. don't realize that it sounds like a wind tunnel in there because exactly. they have all these fans going 24-7. Yeah. Because it uh, uh, turns yeah, out electronics same... produce heat. <laughs> Who Amazing. <knew? laughs> and then when you're in space and you don't have any air to conduct it to outside of the space station and you got to figure out how to get it to, you know, your radiator fins and, and all of that kind of stuff. Uh, so, uh, yeah, definitely, definitely some interesting problems to try to solve and address there. Yeah, at the at the system level, that was actually one thing I was going to ask you about was uh, was cooling, right? I, I mean, like you said, there is no air. You can't just you know flow air from outside around something, or t you know take it in through an inlet and then exhaust it to carry away heat. Um, I suppose you could do something interesting with you know uh, liquid cooling, but then you've kind of just got the same problem. The right. heat is just moved somewhere else in the liquid, so you've got to get heat off to like you said radiator fins to uh to essentially get it off of the, the the craft i mean is is that it is just all conduction to radiator fins outside of the outside of the, the hole i i'm i'm just wondering like what that looks like yeah you know i'm i said that and and i'm actually not 100 percent sure myself um obviously i know that uh all the air inside is 
the air inside and it's going to get warm and, and we got to get things out to space station. And I think that there's enough that when you get it out there and you got the fins, if you can get conduct your heat to those fins, even though it is more or less a vacuum, I think there's just enough there that, you know, we can still radiate some heat away. But I could be very wrong, and and after this podcast, I might need to go look that up and and better understand it myself. So uh, I don't know, one of those things that I haven't thought too much about and just have an idea in the back of my head and and realize now, like, oh, maybe I should go learn this myself sometime. That's fair. That's fair. Um, Just like, you know, talking to a student about Altium. Yeah, right. So I mean, once once um, once a system is, you know, going to get transitioned into production, let's say, you know, you're past the first couple of revs, and um, maybe it's past functional testing, it's ready now to actually get put into, you know, the closer to the final state it will be in once it's deployed. I mean, what kinds of designs are you doing? Because one, one thing I've heard from some other folks in commercial spaces, it's a lot of high reliability power, and then a lot of HDI because they're just trying to pack so much stuff onto a board with in terms of, you know, processor and then all of the sensor interfaces. And then, of course, it's got to do a lot of data crunching. So it's got a whole bunch of peripherals on it. What types of designs are, are you guys doing? Yeah, so one of the really cool things that um, I got to work on recently was a project called Surfy, um, S-E-R-F-E. And um, that was something I kind of came on board late, but I think initially they do a bunch of tests and we had this whole lab set up, you know, so everything's kind of sprawled out a little bit. And so when we get to the real design, um, it every little bit of mass adds a lot of cost because you got to uh, have a lot of fuel for it. So a lot of it comes down to how compact can you make this um, from both the uh, the power side or the avionics, the pumps, the loops. Uh, so Surfy was testing a water cooling system. And so how can we get everything that we need and, and jam it in tight um, to reduce the mass as much as we can? Um, and uh, yeah, the uh, the, so the types of designs that I've gotten to work on are, are more experiment type things. Uh, so the Surfy project was testing a cooling loop thing for the next version of a spacesuit. Um, some other things that I know uh, come out of my uh, branch are still related to spacesuit type things. We've got people working on audio and video for the spacesuits um, and, and testing different things there. Uh, different things for the space station for making it habitable. Um, one of the big things was uh, an orbital communications adapter. Um, and so I remember talking to one of my mentors at one point, and uh, he was a huge part about making it basically that the astronauts could have Twitter in the space station um, and being able to do video calls and phone calls with their family. And, you know, little things that you don't necessarily think too much about, but really when an astronaut's up there for six months at a time, and now astronauts have a way to kind of more directly communicate with the masses in a, a, a way like, Twitter or whatever social media um, and and things like that are really cool um, so uh, in my area a lot of what I think what we do are uh, things to make the space station just more I don't know human ready human accessible type deals um, and then testing out proving out technology in the future or future technologies for astronauts as well that's pretty cool trying to get uh, you know social media up into <laughs> up into yeah. the space station it's yeah. I, I I, I think a lot of people don't even, you know, think about bringing those t- those types of creature comforts into the space station. But you're talking about it more about from the, the perspective yeah. of, the, the story know, communicating I heard with the masses. Is that, uh, so, th- you know, the, the person working on it, oh, sorry, yeah, the story I heard is that uh, 
you know, they kind of put it together and they knew that like, okay, if we really want to sell this project and we want to get funding for it, we need to show it to an astronaut first, because once an astronaut sees that they could have it, they're going to be saying, yes, we need that. We need that. And kind of constantly, you know, pounding, hounding the, the project management um, and the budget people of like, what do you guys need to do to make that happen? And we want that. Um, we, so, you know, it's one of those things that uh, once the right people hear about it, uh, then, you know, you can kind of uh, help, I don't know, persuade, uh, persuade some money people to follow along with it too and, and justify yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I could imagine if uh, someone is uh, maybe a, a, a very active on social media, uh, per, you know, creating something viral about the space station that just goes out there and gets people excited about space again. Yeah. Yeah. And that's one of, I, I forget what they're called, but uh, I'm going to call it core values. I can't think like a mission or a vision or something like that. But uh, a big part of NASA for sure is, is educating and exciting the public about space and technology and science and all that type of stuff. Uh, and, and you look at some of the things that NASA produces and astronauts do and, um, you know, those types of things are all in line with it. Yeah. You know, I, I grew up during a time when, uh, you know, the space shuttle was still, you know, being launched and I'm, you know, you and I are similar age, so you, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. And so, you know, whenever, whenever you got to see video of it, it was just, you know, this magical thing. And, and now it seems like, uh, I don't want to speak for the current generation, but it seems like we don't have that so much. You know, if you work in the, if you work in aerospace, you know, you work in the industry, you work in electronics, like, you know, it exists. Mm -hmm. But like, what is the thing that NASA can do to get, you know, the next generation of engineers excited about space again? Because, you know, commercial space is not an area that is uh, a pipe dream necessarily. I think it, you know, it is something that's legitimate and it's going to grow. There's going to be another, you know, more SpaceX's. There's going to be more Blue Origins. There's going to be more Virgin Galactics and, you know, on and on and on. And, um, you know, the space economy is going to be a real thing. Yeah. And it's going to need people who, you know, can get in and get excited and, and you know, really have great ideas. So, uh, you know, you brought up that NASA's, uh, one of NASA's values is education. Um, what else can, can NASA do or maybe the electronics industry do at large to just get students excited about learning about this stuff? Well, uh, so I, I'm going to cover or touch on a couple of things. One, I think the one of the really cool things about our uh, the commercial uh, crew and cargo and all that with, between SpaceX and Blue Origin and all that is uh, if the commercial sector can take over the low Earth orbit space station type experiments type stuff, that really is what enables NASA to do the, the bigger long-term big picture type stuff of, you know, getting to the Mars or exploring other moon and uh, planets uh and, um, you know, the things beyond low Earth orbit. Uh, so I, I think it's really important for the commercial sector to be able to take that over. I think it's also really cool that, you know, you could have somebody um, in private industry that could be doing very similar things to what it is that I'm doing now. And just, you know, how do you transfer that knowledge over uh, appropriately? Um, because the private industry can also take risks that a, a government industry is not going to. Uh, so they might be willing to lose some cargo or something at some point or have a mission not, you know, go as successfully or I don't know, uh, as long as there's no loss of human life type deal. You know, they, they might have some risks that they're willing to accept that we would not. Um, but then we can focus on on the beyond low Earth orbit stuff. Um, but one of the things that, uh, as far as, you know, exciting the people, um, so one of the things that I do at NASA as well is, um, 
uh, I help out with the, the Robotics Alliance project, which is related to the FIRST Robotics type stuff as well. So I know NASA is a huge sponsor for the FIRST Robotics competition and uh, some of the other uh, competi different robotics competitions as well. And like we were saying earlier, I think all that hands-on experience is uh, for a high school kid and younger is just really where it's at. Um, I get calls from my aunt occasionally, and she's a second grade teacher, I think. And she's like, oh, I had a second grade kid wearing a NASA shirt today. Can I call you and just call you in and, and have them talk to you? And I'm like, yeah, do it at any time. That's, that's totally cool with me. And so I, I don't know. I think it's really cool that um, me just being me, and I don't think of my life as being anything special. And a second grader might call me up and just be like, oh, my gosh, I'm talking to somebody at NASA. And for all they know, I'm practically an astronaut, <laughs> which is not even close to true. But it doesn't matter because it's what inspires them. Um, and so... Uh, yeah, I don't know that hands-on experience being able to go out and do demonstrations uh, The different things NASA does to enable these competitions to happen I, I know when I go to the competitions We've got NASA people employees that are volunteers at the competition and all sorts of roles that you know, they're they're not necessarily uh, I don't know an irreplaceable person. It's somebody queuing up teams and te these team members or teams coming through Don't even know that the person that's like oh stand over here for your next match is like a project manager or like three levels above me at NASA um, And uh, so I think it's really cool the the environment that we have there in the culture uh, to encourage going off and doing uh, Just things that enable and inspire younger kids to, to be involved and, and do that hands-on stuff yeah, my, my hope is that uh, others in the industry will kind of, you know, follow the lead of these programs that work that actually, you know, end up reaching students and getting them to care and join in and find something fun about electronics. Um, you know, Altium is doing it, but I know other companies and other organizations are trying to do it as well. So I'm hopeful that there will be more of that because there is a looming uh, workforce crisis, at least here here in the U.S. Uh, in the electronics industry. So we can only hope that uh, students choose uh, hardware over software. <laughs> for their careers. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think some of it too is as having a work culture that uh, gives some flexibility and encourages that kind of stuff too. Um, especially in the software world, you know, I've got friends uh, at different companies. I won't name, you know, names or anything, but I, I've heard of plenty of companies where they go and they're working 60, 80 hour weeks and they don't have a whole lot of flexibility to do things. And you kind of get burned out and you kind of go for the experience of saying, oh, I worked at this place. Um, and, uh, you know, that, that's not, really what you want you want a good stable thing uh that uh, you get to have fun and i don't know i had a lot of fun doing the robotic stuff as a kid and i get to have fun doing it now um and uh it's you know doesn't become like a day job where i dread going to it um and if i was doing it 80 hours a week i would probably dread it uh, at some point when it when that's just kind of the expectation um so I, I know that I've really enjoyed having the you know work environment and culture that that I've got at NASA, where people encourage and enable you to do those kinds of things. And um, yeah, that's great. That's great. Well, it's it's been great talking to you, and I'm I'm hoping that folks that are out there listening will take some of these ideas to heart and focus on encouraging the next generation to get involved, uh, no matter which CAD tool they're using or yeah. no matter where they want to go and work. Uh, thank you so much again. Um, we're going to include some links in the show notes. We hope everyone that is listening will click on those links, go and learn as much as you can about what uh, Andrew does and go connect with Andrew on LinkedIn. 
Uh, also, uh, we have some other resources that we'll post in the show notes, um, some links to some blogs, and um, hopefully you will all enjoy all of that. Um, Andrew, last time, thank you so much. Okay, oh, one yes, thing, one if you thing. don't mind, I promised my kids I'd have to give them a shout out. So Paradox, FRC 5414, thank you guys for making it fun to go and volunteer and spend so much time with y'all. Uh, it's always a blast working with y'all, and you guys inspire me. So uh, thank you for that. Excellent. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you so much. We'd like to have you back again some point in the future. So um, I will be uh, knocking on your door. Yeah, this was a lot of fun. Thank you for having me. Thank you. And to everybody out there listening in the audience, check out our resources and don't forget, don't stop learning and stay on track. <laughs>